Hello everyone. Last year, Professor Stefano Hani made headlines in Singapore when, as Professor of Strategic Management at the Lee Kong Chen School of Business at Singapore Management University, he decided to give all 169 students in his course the same grade. The university called these grades bogus, but Stefano felt they all deserved it, so he gave them all an A. Stefano later left the university. He already knew he was leaving before he awarded the grades and is currently in Brazil, where I spoke with him about this incident and his course, why this incident received such a hostile reaction from the SMU authorities, and what this reveals about meritocracy in Singapore. This interview was recorded online, with Stefano sitting out on a veranda in front of a beautiful Brazilian countryside, which I envied him a lot for. But uh, this meant that there were some issues with the audio, so our apologies in advance for the audio quality. Yeah, so how did you end up coming to Singapore, for, of all places, after a career in the US, and then uh, you were at Queen Mary, if I remember correctly, in London. What brought you to Singapore? Well, I had had um, some years of association with Southeast Asia more generally. I had worked for a year in Vietnam, uh, on a UNDP project, writing uh, together with Vietnamese academics, writing a, a, an ethics curriculum for the universities. I had uh, worked for a year in Jogjakarta in Indonesia, um, teaching there um, as a Fulbright scholar. Uh, and then at, at Leicester, I had um, been working on distance learning programs that brought me out to Southeast Asia, including in Singapore. So I had some familiarity and also some some true interest in Singapore as a, a very unique and fascinating place. So when uh, I decided to leave Queen Mary, I made inquiries in Singapore to see if there might be any opportunities. And I was riding off the back of all the financial scandals and I'd been writing in the newspapers, uh, the financial collapse, etc. And so um, it was a good time. Business schools were looking to try to um, bolster their strengths in the areas of ethics, uh, in, in the areas of broadening uh, education. And SMU in particular had a brand uh, in which they, they I don't want to say boasted because it's true, they, they delivered it. They, they, um, they marketed uh, having uh, an undergraduate education in business that was both deep, that is a professional education, but also broad. That is, you would also learn history, you would also learn um, ethics, you would also learn something about culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was, a, it was a natural fit for me. And for many years, it was a, um, really a great, uh, great place for me to be a great experiment. I, I, I have many friends uh, in Singapore and I have a, a lot of affection you know, for the place. Uh, and, <clears throat> and I was sorry to go. Um, but I also eventually ran up against these kinds of um, contradictions in the classrooms um, where it became clear, you know, something had to give uh, uh, in terms of uh, what I was trying to do um, in those classrooms. So just, just to be clear, you kind of hint at this at, um, in, in your article, but um, you, was the reason why you had to go directly tied to, in your opinion, what you were doing in the classrooms, or were there broader issues um, that 
you know, there, were there other issues and then what happened in the classroom was used more as an excuse? Because that, that doesn't quite come out clearly why you had to leave, apart from this whole, uh, you know, you're not a good fit sort of logic that you were, you were told. Yeah, I mean, you never know. And I, I also, um, when I was writing the article, I was trying not to make it too much about myself or, or this case of being sort of fired without what appeared to be any real good reason. I can only tell you that, you know, I always received high student evaluations. I was on dean's list for teaching, et cetera, at different times. So I, 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 can't, I can't see anything in, in my work, my behavior. I was always cordial with all my colleagues. That would have been the reason. So I'm left with the idea that they didn't like what I was teaching and how I was teaching, et cetera. Um, and so that got me thinking, well, what didn't they like about it? Because certainly they... It did have a commitment, at least to some degree, to a broader education. Um, they should have liked the idea that I was teaching some philosophy, some literature, some some Buddhist thoughts, some some um, some history, etc. Um, but clearly, it was making them more and more uncomfortable. And um, eventually, I think uh, they decided that it wasn't the the course or the kind of influence that they wanted uh, on the undergraduates. Um, and that's, that's why I came to write the article, to try to figure that out. Right, right, I see. So the article itself was uh, you trying to work through these different ideas. Okay, but um, it, it doesn't, I mean, from my understanding, you were very much delivering what they wanted, which was a very broad-based course that took different approaches to knowledge and provided uh, you know, very broad-based uh, approach. Because um, the whole grading thing uh, and the, you know, the giving everyone A grade didn't happen until after you were asked to leave. So clearly it wasn't that. Um, but yeah, well, I, I guess we'll never really know. Um, yeah, but let's let's talk a bit more about this course, which is, is extremely fascinating. And, you know, you, you're actually the second former Singapore academic I've spoken to who talked about their desire and their, not just desire, but how they created a course that was very broad-based, that uh, tried to take different approaches to knowledge, that drew from very diverse sources. And as part of that, um, they felt uh, the other academic was James Rowlands, who's also on this podcast and actually wrote an article for us as well. He wasn't fired, but he felt his position increasingly untenable. Is there something within the, the system? Was there a pressure to, uh, you know, did you feel a pressure to alter your course? That You, you don't really talk about that in your article. Um, were, were you given feedback about why the course was not satisfactory? Was, did any of that come out? Um, no, uh, it, it not directly. I mean, uh, it was a popular course, and it was a course where I received always good evaluations. So I, I don't think there was a way really to, to, to criticize the course directly in that sense. I think what they had to say is that we don't want this course and this approach, you know, um, more generally. Uh, but they also eliminated the course. So it was also obviously about more than me. So why did they eliminate the course? Well, I think 
one reason was that its strength was that it came at the end of four years. Um, so the students, uh, when you teach a course that's not in a student's major when they first arrive, they're impatient. They want to get past it and they want to get on to their major and they're worried about the jobs, etc. By the time I had them in the very last semester in many cases, they'd done plenty of business. Uh, often they already had something set up afterwards. They actually had a chance to do something different and they seized it and they took great advantage of it in many cases. And the course itself then became an opportunity to reflect back on those four years, to reflect also forward on the future in a broader way than just whether you'll get the internship. There were threats in both of those. In looking back, of course, part of looking back is, is looking back critically. So sure, it's possible that colleagues or the school in general would feel, well, they're in this classroom and they're spending time saying that, you know, the education wasn't exactly what it should be, et cetera. In fact, we weren't doing that much of that. Um, and then there was also the question of looking forward. You know, what we all ask these larger questions in the classroom, uh, you know, what, what's going to make you happy? Um, what would you think of as your calling? Um, how, how are you going to comport yourself with others? Broader questions about their lives, which they felt able to address in part because they got through, they got their grades. People coming out of Singapore Management University get jobs, you know, all credit to Singapore Management University. Their graduates get jobs, so they're not going out, you know, fearful about the, the future. Um, so, <clears throat> It was a course that really was very, very different from the courses going on around it. And, and unfortunately, sometimes it's just merely this difference that makes other academics nervous, I guess, or makes them feel that they're losing hold of what they think the discipline should be, what they think the reading should be, what they think the progression should be. But one of the things I argue in the, in the, article is that this is all based on this very uh, artificial sense of a restricted, uh, the term that I use in the article is means production. When you're, when you're in a university, what happens is although actually you can read anything you want, you could look at anything you want, you could set the room up any way you want, you're supposed to not study this before you study that. You're not supposed to study this and that together all these ways in which you're restricted. And what we did is try to throw those doors open and say, we should be able to read anything. We should be able to look at anything in any combination. And moreover, another restriction is always, did you get it right? Did you master it? Are you perfect at it now? Can you move on? And we threw that out. We said, you don't have to be perfect to, to look at this or to use that. And moreover, everything is not gonna come down to the grade which reestablishes the scarcity. Okay, you got this good grade, so you now have access to you know, the medical sciences, but you didn't get as good grade, so you only have access to healthcare, whatever the case might be. So inside the classroom, we were also challenging this restriction of the means of production, what you can read, what you can look at, what qualifications you have to have for this or that. Now, that's not to say that we want someone to fly a plane who doesn't know how to fly a plane, but that's not the situation we're in a, in a classroom. Um, we have the possibility to make mistakes. We have the possibility to study in all these ways that don't require constant creations of hierarchy, constant 
artificial impositions of scarcity. There are only so many A's. And that, of course, is the most notorious part of what came out in the newspapers was that um, SMU had to admit that they had a bell curve around grading. The grading was not according to your merit. Grading was an artificial scarcity created by a bell curve. There could only be 30% A's. And if there weren't 30% A's, that was the fault of the teacher who didn't find a way to somehow trick or separate that 30% from the rest. But that implies, in this idea of a more discriminating assessment, that implies that naturally in our world there exists 30% of people who are better than the remaining um, 70% of people, etc. And even then, there's another 40 and there's a 30. So underlying the bell curve was this view of human nature. That view of human nature, in turn, is one that the has has a history in, in, in Singapore, um, mm-hmm. and it's not a great history. Now, like I want to emphasize, I love Singapore, and I, I love many of the people that I met there and the friends, but there is a history, an ideology in Singapore that is not something to love. It comes out of colonialism, it comes out of racial capitalism, and it started by saying, look, there's a bell curve, and there's some people who are in that 30%. And of course, because it was colonialism, those 30% were the Europeans. Then there was rankings all the way down and through. Now, as you know, Singapore's approach to that history is not that they don't know it, but to say, let's not talk about it, let's not deal with it, because it was bad and it creates tension between people. But the problem is they don't talk about it, but they took from it scarcity, this notion of merit, this notion that there is somehow a certain amount. Uh, of people who are super talented, and then there's a whole bunch of ordinary people. And there's really no human evidence around that. You know, mm-hmm. that has to do, the institutions create that. Uh, uh, where and who, whom you're born with creates that. So, what we were doing in the classroom is challenging this idea of scarcity, and then challenging the idea that the only way to deal with scarcity is through merit. But actually, merit is the imposition of scarcity. It's the thing that says, oh, there's only so much to go around. It's the bell curve. It's the grading curve. And then it turns around and says, I'll make it fair. I know there's only so much to go around. I'll make it fair. We'll, we'll give it to the most talented. That's a very artificial move. And in the classroom, we were trying to remove that. But that is also a move that's made in Singapore. Singapore has a good problem, but it's they don't see it as a good problem. And it's good problem is it rich. But for them, this is a problem because they don't want to distribute the resources of this wealth evenly. They want to stick to this idea that people who are rich deserved it. And people who aren't rich don't deserve it, but have a chance if they work hard to deserve it. So that is the larger model at work uh, in Singapore. And it's, it's an interesting model because it links up with, this, um, with the, this notion of the Singapore model, at the heart of which is um, a country with, you know, really a low corruption index, right? Really very little. Um, well, low perception of corruption. That's what I always have to point out. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we can, we, let me, if I may, I'll move on to that a bit and then we can circle back around. But as you know, um, uh, you know, when you travel in the region and you tell people I'm living in Singapore, 
depending on who you tell, but especially if you tell a politician or a businessman, they will say to you, oh, we want to be more like Singapore. You know, mm. if you, every Indonesian businessman will say that. They'll also have, of course, their resentments and their petty kind of, uh, you know, kind of um, sense of, you know, jealousies and, and, and the history of ethnic tensions, etc. But they will say, I, we want to be like Singapore. You know? Um, and and then you have to ask yourself, well, what do you mean by that? And sure, you if you give them the benefit of the doubt, you could say, well, we want to be perceived as low in corruption. We want to work. We want to have a beautiful, you know, public transportation system, etc. But we we generally, if we think about it, we know it means more than that. They they also want a society where they 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 can stay in control, um, and where the model rolls over with a continuity of who's in control, who runs businesses, who runs government. Um, and not only is that something you want to question, right? Why would you really want a one-party system? But, all, but secondly, uh, it's, it's, Singapore is not a model. It's an exception. Indonesia can't follow Singapore. You know, uh, um, uh, even Malaysia uh, would be hard-pressed to, to follow. Um, certainly Thailand. The Philippines, these places cannot. There, there are huge populations in these countries that need employment. You know, more than anything else, if development's going to mean anything in those countries, they're going to need regularized wage employment. And that is not the Singapore model. The Singapore model is that you get your wage employment from outside. You have you have guest workers do it. You have guest workers in the in the service and domestic area, and you have guest workers in construction, maintenance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there is no way to replicate that in a big populous nation. Um, moreover, most of those nations are in a different position vis-a-vis -vis this history of, of merit and this history of scarcity. So if you're in Indonesia and you see um, somebody become a minister, your first thought is not, well, uh, it's, that's a talented person who probably deserves a job. Um, unfortunately, your first thought is something else, uh, you know, a corrupt thought. Uh, thought about you know wh whose connection, what is what is this minister doing behind our backs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, in in Singapore, you know, we struggle with a different question. We struggle instead with the idea that uh, it's natural that let's say the governmental means of production should be restricted in the way they are to the talented people of PAP for instance. Um, we assume that there, these resources have to be scarce, just like in the university, we assume that resources have to be scarce, that you can't be studying everything, that you can't put yourself forward as capable um, in all these areas, that you can't mix and match things. You need to be an expert. You need to be trained. You need to be disciplined. All of that has its place, but it's only one aspect uh, of what it means um, to be able to have a, 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 a democratic participatory process, whether in a classroom or, or in a society. And, and that's, that's where we saw, especially in the reaction in social media and in, in newspapers, that what we were doing in the classroom did have a relationship to this ideology of meritocracy that justifies why a country as wealthy as 
Singapore um, still has a growing stratification of who uh, is rewarded because allegedly those rewards are based on merit. And because there's enough faith in this idea of merit, what we have is a lot of poor people who work really hard with the idea that eventually their merit will be recognized and they too um, will share more, um, not only means of production, that is they'll, they'll be brought into where the money's being made, but also in the money itself. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, what you know when you, when you teach in Singapore is that there's tons of smart, talented kids. It's not 30% or 20% or 5% that deserve this or that. You know, the vast majority of those kids in the class can do almost anything and have all kinds of talents. Um, but we end up restricting that, creating these scarcities. And, and the business schools are quite open about it. They will say to you, we have to do this discrimination and grading so that Goldman Sachs or, or you know, um, CIBC or whoever will, will come in and um, know which students to take. You know? um, it's artificial, uh, but it's necessary to keep up this theology that um, some people are just naturally more talented or have worked harder and therefore are more deserving. Um, and, and that's, I think, what we challenged in that classroom and why perhaps without making, you know, sounding too grandiose again, uh, why um, the university, the business school in particular, felt moved to, to end that popular class. Thanks. Well, this was fascinating. I really enjoyed that. Um, and, you know, you're in some ways you're preaching to the choir because, of course, I and New Narrative, we've talked a lot about the very uh, destructive legacy of colonialism, not just in terms of race relations, but in terms of social hierarchies and how our society is constructed, especially given how we've embraced our colonial history to try and create uh, a new state narrative that divorced us from our Malayan past. Can I ask you, I'm, I'm very curious, how, can you talk a bit more about how you tried to break this down in your class? Was it purely through the methodology um, which you've talked about or did you also include a lot of readings um, which actually sought explicitly to undermine this um, or a mixture of both? A couple of different things we tried. Of course, it was a yeah. kind of experiment. So some things work better than others. Um, some things that we did, you know, to give an example, um, business schools are very big on teamwork and group work, but they are also very big on discriminating individually your grade. So one of the things we had tried to do is that we said, look, we're going to make teams, right? And the idea is that there is no, not going to be in the end, a personal grade for how well you worked in the team. We're going to try to break down some of the excessive individuation that's taught, right? Which, you know, as you know, is runs against much of, much of the culture of Southeast Asia anyway. This I-I-I individuation that comes in the business school runs against a lot of people's sense that they are part of larger families, larger communities, that the I is not the most important thing. It's your relations. 
so we we tried to address that directly um, with people and and to get them to talk about how they saw themselves beyond this sort of individual who was being graded and and ranked um, in, in their in their society. One other thing we did was we tried to break down the difference between something like I think I called it in the article a means and a and a product. So traditionally, European thinkers, for instance, were understood as the means. So one thing we tried to do in the classroom is to say um, the, the restriction on what we can use to, to generate knowledge, let's call that a means for generating knowledge, a means of production, is artificial. Actually, we should avail ourselves of all available means. I mean, knowledge is famously free, available, and more so than ever. Of course, there's all these attempts to restrict it. And some of those attempts are well-meaning. A lot of the attempts in the university are well-meaning. But what would happen if we really open it up? So what were some of the ways we tried to do it? Well, one way we tried to do it is I tried to say, well, look, traditionally, one of the ways the means is restricted is that we say certain thinkers are a true means for new knowledge. Those tend to be the... The, the, the great European thinkers. And particularly in my class, we would use the thinkers who were thought of as the ones who really raised questions about modernity, like Freud, Nietzsche, Marx, etc. However, the problem is twofold. First, what happens is that when, often when they're taught, what you do is you say, okay, this, is a, this person is a true means for creating new knowledge. And what you do is you take these means and you apply it, let's say, to... Uh, something that you don't consider knowledge, you just consider it an object. So take take Freud and um, apply it to uh, Train to Busan, right? In that instance, Train to Busan is not thought to have its own way of generating knowledge. It needs Freud, right? Two problems. One, Train to Busan does have its own thinking, does have its own ability to create knowledge. And two, if you're going to say you can only use Freud, then there's a further step where you have to be an expert in Freud. So what we try to do is loosen all that up and say, look, you don't have to be an expert to use Freud. And you can imagine that Train to Busan is also a theoretical text that can generate something. Yes, it's a movie. Yes, it's fun, etc. Right. And so that's one thing we try to do is break down these distinctions. And as you'll note, these distinctions also turn out to be colonial distinctions, neo-colonial distinctions, whatever you want to call them. It tends to be the case that the, the most guarded parts of the means of production are these theorists, many of whom came out of Europe or still keep coming out of Europe versus all of these other forms of knowledge, forms of creativity, forms of exploration, forms of meditation that are being produced everywhere, being produced in Singapore, in Korea, in Thailand, you know, in Kenya, in Uganda, et cetera, et cetera. We tried to break all that down and say, look, anything can potentially be a way to learn more. And then secondly, we also tried to deal with the style of, of learning and knowledge creation. So for instance, uh, learning how to do literary criticism, close readings. It's a good skill. It's, it's important. We did some of that. But I said to them, look, it's no, it's no better or less than learning meditation. Meditation is also a form um, of, of developing knowledge or of getting rid of knowledge or however you want to think of it. We, what we're trying to get rid of is the hierarchy, the merit that says 
literary criticism is a proper academic form of the production of knowledge. Nah, meditation, that's something that we keep on the side or it's just for your health or whatever the case may be. So breaking down not just where we can find knowledge, but how we can find knowledge and what approaches we can take to it. So those are the kinds of things we did. And then finally, some of the simpler things were simply that we would mix things that don't normally mix. You're not supposed to mix marketing with a look at post-colonial studies. Um, you're not supposed to mix strategy um, with a, a, a look at, I don't know, um, uh, you know, um, the history of art, whatever the case may be. Now, that's not to say that you never find a business school where somebody says, look how Michelangelo, you know, did this, and this can tell us something about creativity, and that can feed into organizational behavior. Sure, that happens, but the hierarchies are all still really there. We were trying to break that down. We were trying to say, pick what you want, understand yourself to be able to use different forms, mix and match. There's, no, there's nothing you have to do first before you do something second, etc. Then finally, the last thing that we kept trying to stress is – this point that um, you know comes out of a lot of places, but most famously is 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 uh, attributed to Gramsci, which is that everybody is a philosopher, uh, everybody is thinking philosophic, and so we also had to expand that, and that was really, I think, the most rewarding part for the students because they wanted to ask these questions: What's my purpose? Um, what should be my relation to others? Whether or not they're conscious of it, they are asking those questions all the time. Uh, and we just were surfacing that, giving them practice with that, et cetera. So I think all those things, you know, um, some fail, some work, uh, but I think they could be a threat to academics who have an investment in the traditional way um, to do teaching, in the traditional idea of a discipline, um, in the traditional idea of uh, beyond, beyond anything else, the traditional idea of merit that some of you will be good at this and some of you will be not, not be good at it, um, that everyone will get what they deserve from that process. And most importantly, and this extends into another area, but I think it's important, I, I, I like to my colleagues, and it sounds like I'm being critical of them, but what I'm really being critical of is their training. They themselves have always had a very restricted idea of what they can do. Now, some of them are really good at it, super good at it, and some of them maybe even aren't dissatisfied with being restricted. But when I came in, one of the things I really noticed in many of them is that they had really had a very tracked, controlled, uh, contained history of studying. Um, they had worked with supervisors in which they were given parts of tasks of larger projects that they had to complete. Um, they often were working... Um, in ways in which they were expected to continue the supervisor's work, the supervisor was supposed to help them with a job, and then they were supposed to replicate that model. In many cases, because the business school has tried to become so rigorous and disciplined, they've, they, they've forced most of these younger professors to, to stay inside the world of the university their entire lives just to keep up and get going. So they buy data sets about things happening out in the real world, but they're not part of that. Um, they, they don't have a history as being entrepreneurs or working in government or any number of these things, by and large. Uh, and so they, 
I think when they saw this course, they saw it as a kind of threat to, um, to, to the model that they had invested so much in, um, for better and for worse. And I'm not saying there aren't any, I'm certainly not saying there aren't any smart people in that model because there were smart people in it. But it appears a very restricted model to me and I think to many others. Um, and I don't think anybody likes it when you point out that they are uh, living in a very contained or restrict, restricted um, um, mode of, of life, you know. Um, I mean, what you're doing, you're breaking down gates and you're overturning hierarchies and the people who are the gatekeepers or at the top of those hierarchies naturally are going to resist that, especially if they feel they've earned, they've worked so hard to earn um, their position in those, you know, either as the gatekeeper or at the top of the hierarchy. Um, and, you know, fundamentally also you're asking... It's one of the ironies I found of uh, in academia that it it's a place which encourages is supposed to be encouraging and wants to incentivize research, uh, cutting edge research, innovative thinking, innovative approaches to knowledge, and yet it's so deeply conservative in how it's run. And I found it personally extremely frustrating as an as an academic in a traditional university to come up against that and um, you know it's one of the reasons why why I I basically have left to create my own company to try and uh, further my you know different ways of um, of being an academic and educating people um, yeah so so what you, you you you're talking about right deeply deeply resonates with me because I I you know what new narrative is trying to do is also lower many of these barriers to knowledge although we don't have this same all-encompassing um, uh, idea about um, you know, uh, making the the means um, or yeah making it unlimited. But I, I'm going to have to really think about that. You know, I mean, you've given me a lot to think about as someone who's trying to innovate in terms of knowledge, uh, in terms of education, knowledge production, innovate in terms of business. Um, and honestly, I think the skills that for me as a small business owner would have been most useful are philosophy and um, sort of sociology or anthropology, you know, not, not like business theory. And I read so many books on marketing and really it, it hasn't really helped. Yeah, so would, would a logical next step for you be to then take that course out of the university and make it universally available to anyone who, you know, if you put any gate on it, isn't that a sort of contradiction in terms? So make it ungated is my question. Is that a, is that a logical next step? Yes. Uh, and actually, I, I, I would also say that maybe it was a, uh, a pre-step. I had had some experience with um, small, mostly small organizations who had one, for instance, had stepped outside of the University of Rome because they had found that they were having trouble studying inside the university. So they they set up almost across the street from the from La Sapienza and they began their own courses of study that were open to anyone. They also were involved in another number of other important projects, uh, support for migrants, um, 
attempts to keep police from abusing people in the neighborhood, etc. Uh, but but at the core was a program of study that the students set up themselves. I think this is was one thing that I really learned from it is that it, it would be one thing for me to kind of set up and say, I'm here, it's free, zoom in, and you know, work together. In that, there is still the presumption that I know what the course of study should be. And of course, as much as possible, I would try to keep it open. But even better is a situation in which students generate what they want to learn from their own experiences, their own needs, uh, from, from the challenges that they face. And then they ask whoever is appropriate, whether it's me or whether it's someone else, can you come talk with us about this? And indeed, that was the model uh, that was going on with the students who who, who, who left the University of Rome to do this. And um, it's a model I've seen occasionally in alternative art schools where art students have felt that the, the curriculum was too heavily laden with tradition and um, too demanding on, 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 on which uh, specific skills you had to, to learn, et cetera. And, and so it's been a curious uh, period here um, being on Zoom during this epidemic because actually I've found that for me and for my writing partner, Fred Moten, we've actually done a lot more open access conversations and talks from our computer than we ever were able to organize uh, live. Now, they're not as satisfying and they can't sustain. And as we spoke about it, as we were um, just warming up, it, uh, there is the problem of the technologies and and being able to get those affective cues and, and thoughts. And yet, nonetheless, it's made us feel more strongly than ever that um, we have to find ways to, to, to practice what we're preaching. Um, I don't mind, I'm not trying to achieve purity. So I was very happy to experiment with this at SMU with these students. Um, but of course, there are limits. Uh, First of all, and and secondly, of course, there are, uh, I guess you'd call them dangers. I mean, you're not people don't necessarily want you to do this kind of uh, opening up for a whole number of reasons. Um, and and so I, I'm always looking for models around the world um, that where people are setting up forms of education that uh, are are open, that has, if you say, no gates, that are more cooperative, um, that are driven by the real needs of the students, because behind the needs of the students are the needs of the society. Um, and, uh, and fortunately, there's a lot of models out there. Uh, there are models that, uh, that we've been particularly um, influenced by in Mexico, um, among indigenous people in Mexico, but also among um, people who are influenced by educational thinkers like Ivan Illich and Paolo Freire. Um, and now we have a, a lot of people who are, um, for instance, I'm going to be speaking with a, a student a little later today, and her whole PhD is on collecting and looking at these alternative models of education. So I think because the university itself is coming into a kind of crisis in many places, it's less, less noticeable in Singapore than it is in many places, um, 
people are searching for alternatives. Um, and and that's, that's great for me because it means that I have plenty of inspiration and plenty of, plenty of colleagues too. That's, I mean, it's, it's, that's so fascinating. I think most people, this is actually a recurring theme in Singapore, most people would agree that the education system in Singapore is um, not so much in terms of outcomes, but in terms of the, the damage it does to students, uh, deeply problematic, right? And there are, there are definitely very good things about it. You know, we get um, very high levels of literacy, math, you know, in, if, in an, as much as those are assumed to be good things, but they also produce students who, uh, as you pointed out, uh, think in certain ways, replicate certain hierarchies, uh, conform to certain behaviors. And, this, and also the trauma of this education uh, on young minds then leaves deep scars that affect how we behave and our mental health in the rest of our lives. You know, I mean, as someone who went through that, the pre-university system, I can definitely attest to some, some of the trauma. What would you, would you recommend, I suppose, uh, which would probably be our last, last question. Uh, you know, it's, it's getting on and uh, you've been very generous with your time. Um, for, for reform of the, of the university educational system in Singapore. So give, give our listeners maybe some food for thought about what, uh, what would be... A, a possible potential change that you'd like to see? Well, one, I mean, you won't be surprised to hear that one change, I think, is, um, is that we should move away from grading. Oh, yeah. And, and we should move towards peer evaluations, that is, students talking about the strengths of each other um, as an outcome from a class. We should do the same with, with teachers, you know, talking about supporting each other, talking about, you know, helping each other. We need to foster, I think, you're, you're right. Um, there, are some, there are some brilliant things about what Singapore has been able to achieve uh, through its system, but there has been a lot of collateral damage. And my students would often speak about this in the class once we got into it. And, and we have to find, I think there are two key things. One is we have to move towards a more cooperative system where everything is not based on competition where and where everything is based on true mutual support, true mutual help. It, it doesn't mean that people don't have to meet certain benchmarks, particularly, you know, if you're, if, if, if there are forms of knowledge that are going to have to build, like in, in parts of medicine, parts of law, parts of engineering, you have to build, but we don't need this hyper, uh, vigilant separation of every individual from every individual through competition and then through the imposition of scarcity and all this notion of merit. And we don't need that because that's the damaging part. And we can get all the great stuff in, in Singapore higher education and, 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 and elementary education, et cetera, with all the dedication that's already there, all the commitment that's already there without the damage of the competition. But this is also important historic, you know, for Singapore to deal with its history. Because because we're so committed to this model of meritocracy, it's an easy step to say people who are not doing well don't deserve to do well or just aren't in the right place in the curve. 
And what that translates to in Singapore is that lower levels of Malay achievement, especially among Malay men, um, limited interest in education among, you know, uh, women of Indian descent, all these different kinds of stereotypes, which really are a matter that had nothing to do with merit and everything to do with the way the British imposed their rule and to some degree the way that the PAP picked up the rule from the British. If we stick to this meritocracy, not only is it damaging in the present, but it's damaging to our sense of our you know, Singaporean past, which needs to be corrected so that we can have a, a, a harmonious future as well as a cooperative future. It can't just be Chinese cooperating with Chinese and Indians who are cooperating with Indians, right? And, and that requires some reckoning with the past and some admittance that we're not here by our natural talents alone, but by historical circumstances, which had everything to do with political power and, and, and histories of racism amongst the colonizers, et cetera, et cetera. So there's both an immediate reason, which is I would have loved to have been in a classroom where my students were saying, this has been a great system and I feel you know, that I'm in a cooperative good place rather than one that says, I feel like I got to work every night until midnight, that kind of thing, right? It's important for right now, but it's also important for historical reckoning for Singapore so that it can have the harmony it always says that it wants. Um, and so that, that would be my last comment is that this artificial scarcity produced by meritocracy needs to be replaced by a much more cooperative, mutually supportive way of understanding each other. You can even still use the term evaluation if you like, but that should be an evaluation based on peer-to-peer -peer mutual support and development, not on competition. I, 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 I totally agree with you. I'm just thinking back to my own education and how, because the problem is it's, uh, it's based on competition, the peer evaluations then became very vicious because people saw it as an attempt to cut down the competition so i'm like it, it so what you're proposing sounds seems seductively simple right let's change how we agree but actually what you're proposing is a really comprehensive change in how we see ourselves as individuals as human beings connected to our, our community it's a total sea change in our imagination of ourselves as as being part of society you know so in some ways you you're asking you're, you're suggesting incredibly deep fundamental change about how we imagine ourselves within this broader society and that's that that is yeah i mean i i, I totally agree with you but it, it's going to be a huge huge challenge it is going to be a huge challenge the very last thing i would say is that um we can do it we, and when I say we can do it, we, Singapore can do it, everywhere who needs to do it can do it. I mean, we actually are capable. There's the great Caribbean thinker C.L.R. James wrote a book, a little short pamphlet that I used to teach. And the title of the book was Every Cook Can Govern. And, of course, the point of the book was, you know, we all have capabilities that need to be developed rather than ranked and turned into a problem of scarcity. You can't govern because I'm governing. You can't have this banging job because I haven't. You know, all of that. And we know that Singapore has a, a colloquial version of this, right? If you, if you go to a buffet 
in Singapore, even though, you know, there's plenty of food, <laughs> there's a sense, right? Oh, they just put this stuff out. I better get to it, right? So, you yeah. know, some of that's being a small country, being an island, et cetera, but some of it is not so healthy. Some of it is that that imposed idea of scarcity, which, um, you know, has, has this damaging side. Yeah, and I think there is historical precedent because definitely if you look at the writings of uh, Singaporeans, Malayans, you know, the, the sort of late colonial, post-colonial world. You cited Fanon in, one of, in, in your article, you know. Uh, there is a greater sense of collective solidarity in that period uh, that has been, I don't know if it's been suppressed or we've, we've uh, society has, has changed because of the impact of neoliberal capitalism or liberal democracy or whatever that's fundamentally transformed us or maybe superficially transformed us. But if we can get from there to here, there's no reason why we can't get back from here to there, right? We just need the proper, you know, motivation. And I think the world is supplying it uh, right now by showing that the whole world is interconnected and you can think of yourselves as individuals all you like, but um, the, everyone in the world collectively faces a problem now in COVID-19 and a bigger problem coming down the road in climate change that can only be solved if we start imagining ourselves as one society. You're absolutely right. And you're also right to say that both Malaysia and Singapore have a lot of resources to draw on in their histories and their cultures and and that's why I have confidence. And every day, my students in that classroom used to give me confidence. So um, I'm an optimist about it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stefano. Uh, thank, thank you for you. your time. You're very welcome. And that was Professor Stefano Hani. Our thanks to him for joining us on Political Agenda this week. Next week, be sure to tune in to Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews, and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And do check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com join. Membership start at just 52 US dollars a year. Or if you're not up for a membership right now, that's fine. You can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead.